miniseries, six episodes, and it's a story about a woman who uh, she's leaving a practice where she was at the top of her game um, at one of the premier law firms in Washington, D.C. Her father becomes ill and she has to spend a lot of time in her old neighborhood. And things have changed, things are rough, things are tough. And um, just beginning to spend a lot of we're back to the Neil Haley Show and also the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? And I know we have a big group of people to interview today, and it's such a great uh, show. Kim, take it away. Yeah. Hi, Neil. I'm doing great. I am actually on a train. So if I move around, hopefully I won't make anybody motion sick and you won't hear the train too much. But uh, Amtrak, all the way, baby. It's kind of nice. I am so excited <laughs> about our guest. We have met Karen before, Karen Abercrombie, who is one of a kind. I have to say, Karen, I just adore you. And we have teased these stallings with us. And he played for the Cardinals. And between them, the two of them, uh, they have such a passion to do what's right in the world, to, to help people with their faith, help people grow in their faith. And they put their faith as number one, but they are both. Incredible actors, writers, producers. I don't even know how many awards they have between the two of them. But thank you guys so much for being here. It's so great to see you. I oh, appreciate it. And also we got Cameron Arnett with us as well. So Cameron, appreciate you stopping by as well. And then you know, Kim and we'll just go. It's good no to ask questions. How are you? Great to see you too. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I got on a little late. It's nice that we have the whole crowd. So you've got a new show coming out that is outstanding. I am sure that it will quickly become a fan favorite. Eleanor's Bench, Karen playing Eleanor. Karen, if you could start us out and just tell us a bit about Eleanor's Bench. I'm sure everybody's dying to hear about it. It's, it's a wonderful, uh, powerful um, piece. Uh, miniseries, six episodes, and it's a story about a woman who uh, she's leaving a practice where she was at the top of her game um, at one of the premier law firms in Washington, D.C. Her father becomes ill and she has to spend a lot of time in her old neighborhood. And things have changed. Things are rough. Things are tough. And um, just beginning to spend a lot of time there, she's seeing things that she hadn't seen or she did he pop in just to visit her dad. And uh, he becomes very ill and she has to spend a lot of time over there and um, she can see now. And um, she eventually leaves her prestigious position at this law firm and she takes a seat as a judge on the juvenile um, bench, you know. And so, yeah, it, it's powerful. The stories are powerful. And uh, yeah, playing the heartstrings and open a lot of eyes for a lot of people who, yeah, will be looking in. So I'm so grateful to be a part of this and to be working with these two outstanding gentlemen, outstanding beings and outstanding artists. 
TC, tell us, you know, specifically enough about the project and how impactful it has been for you. Uh, I speak mostly to just just the overall message in it, as I think it's it's addressed in such a way that it's it's interesting. Um, I think it addresses it from a real world place, uh, mm -hmm. to where you know to just knock out the elephant in the room, you know, uh, a faith based. Uh, story or whatever and I just you know the immediate thing people think is just you know what's the message that I'm going to get you know who's going to preach to me who's going to and uh, I was happy to see that this just doesn't do that it's the the story does the if you want to use the word preaching I like to use the word teaching um, mm -hmm. and the story teaches the message in how you can apply this stuff in your life you know as a Christ follower or just as a human being I think it does a good job of, of that and so I'm just impressed that it does that in a, in a real world way. Um, and as far as my character, um, you know, I, I play the, the son in it. And for me, it's just, it was easy for me because it's something that I went through in real life. You know, I've, uh, the Apollo character, I've done that in real life. I've had that encounter with my dad in real life. Um, so uh, it's just, I think people will be able to possibly in some way, shape or form with some of these characters, maybe see themselves in it and uh they'll be able to resonate with it that way and when you can resonate with what you're watching i mean that's where the power comes from and so i feel like they'll they'll see that with this so i'm excited to to see that play out and, and see people's response to different characters and the different things that they go through yeah well that's that's incredible and people are gonna gonna love it <laughs> and learn a lot from it i like that too the teaching not preaching that makes a whole lot of sense cameron you how did you become a part of this and uh, what does it mean to you? Well, actually, um, I became a part of this quite early on. We had actually shot a pilot to begin with um, prior to this. And uh, so many other things happened and things changed. And when it came to this point, um, I got involved playing Reginald, which is the love interest of uh, Eleanor. And he's the one that's basically in the neighborhood that has a pulse on the neighborhood and who understands what's going on right now as Eleanor is coming back. And so the uh, fervor between them and as to what's going to happen between them and those kind of things kind of a, is a through line. But at the same time, mainly you're dealing with the uh, interactions of the neighborhood, of the people, the circumstances, who they are, what they go through and the reality of how it interrelates with every other life, um, whether they're in that neighborhood or not. And um, like TC was saying, I, one of the things that I, I appreciate about it was, or is that it, it teaches you, shows you aspects of life that you may have not thought about, but then you, when you see it on the screen, you realize the similitude that it has to other lives and how it can really impact you, how you resonate with it, because really it's something that's talking about humanity as opposed to just people across the tracks. And I think the great thing, Cameron, also is the fact that we're finally, you know, looking at certain stories in Christian based that's going to really give the real world accounting what's happening, not yes. just sugarcoated, really okay. going into some deep, strong messages, but still involving faith in it, which will cross promote to other people that might not be Christian that really Correct. want something like this. Correct. Without a doubt, I think, you know, the importance of um, being able not to sugarcoat, to tell a true gritty story of life and, and human and people um, and 
how faith is interwoven within that. But the reality is that you're just talking about life. And I think regardless of what your beliefs may be from the spiritual perspective, um, there's an understanding of what um, the humans are going through and what you need to know about each and every one um, and the process. And, and, and uh, I, I think some of it will actually rub people right way or the wrong way but the bottom line is that truth will be told and and um, we'll have something to rediscuss really in a real way absolutely such great things and uh karen that's the exciting thing you've been part of pure flicks and other films now to see something in this series that really is bringing home it's got to feel great for you as an actor all these years to see what's happening and how we're really intertwining as i said before the faith and the realness i'm i'm excited about What's happening and how PureFlex is looking into these things more? As am I. It's important. And when people uh, tune in and they see real life, their lives um, played out on screen before them, they'll be pulled in. They'll be drawn in. And so I believe that when that happens, then people drop the barriers and then you can really minister through the story without hitting somebody in the head or pulling out a Bible <laughs> and you know, all of that stuff. So yeah, real life, real life. Fantastic. And again, it's available on pure flicks today, June 30th. Everyone needs to go check it out and uh, appreciate you guys all coming by. Uh, it was a quick interview, but I appreciate it. And good luck to all of you and great work on this, this project and look forward to seeing you guys again. Appreciate it. Thanks guys. All right. All right. You're, you're listening and watching the Neil Haley show. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and my guest today is John Lincoln, CEO of Ignite Visibility. Uh, John, thanks for stopping by, man, and uh, we're going to be talking about a bunch of different things, but tell me about your journey as an entrepreneur first. Well, I started the company about 10 years ago, and uh, gosh, it's just been a blast ever since it, it started. And uh, we're now a six-time Inc. 5000 company, get to work with some of the biggest brands in the world. We started out with just uh, search engine optimization and paid media, but then we added social media marketing, email marketing, analytics, conversion rate optimization, creative. And now we offer seven different services, and that's kind of really our goal is just to offer best-in-class services uh, You know, around one cross channel strategy for uh for the top clients you know that that we can serve so loving it every day love digital marketing where there's always ups and downs but um and a lot of people i think knock on agency life but it was built for me it's just my favorite thing to do every day so absolutely and my co-host could be joining me at one point but this is it's so fun and that's the power of podcasting but let's go right really quickly to specifically enough who do you serve with your agency small looks like it's a definite full service digital marketing agency social media agency type of thing but who do you serve who do you who is your ideal client so our ideal client varies a little bit, but we we generally work with people who are number one in the space or who we can take to be number one in the space. But one, one of the main clients uh, that we work with is businesses that have a lot of locations. Uh, Driven Brands is a, is a perfect example. Uh, it's a, a series of different uh, auto body uh, repair and shops, and, and we work with a lot of their different locations. So we like to work with one national presence as well as their you know, tens to hundreds to 
thousands of locations and craft strategies that connect everything together. That being said, we our, our agency really does work uh, across the board. Uh, 30% of our clients are e-commerce. And um, what we like to do is craft custom premium solutions uh, for, for the best uh, clients out there. So we run a little bit of the gamut. And in that process, when you were figuring that out, you're like saying you want to make them number one. How do you make them number one? So, you know, we kind of have this philosophy that you actually can bring certainty to digital marketing. You know, it's all based off of math. Everything's inside the analytics. You know, I look at digital marketing and I look at traffic almost like a financial portfolio. So inside of, and I, and I taught analytics uh, at UC San Diego for almost a decade. Uh, so know analytics really, really well. And I believe it's it's one of the most important things uh, in digital marketing. But you can look at uh, where your competitors are. You can look at where you are. You can look at the traffic they're getting to their website and the benchmarks for the industry. And you can see the difference of where you are and where they are. And you can determine how much it costs to get a customer from each of the individual traffic channels. And then you can simply plot a plan to get there by scaling in the correct way. So uh, with that knowledge, you know we're able to uh, reverse engineer anything that's out there. And for me, uh, just being in the space for so long, nearly 20 years now, doing this all day, every day, it's very clear to me how to build a program that's going to get somebody to match and then exceed best in class. All right, David, what question do you have for, for well, John? Everything that he was just talking about, I'm, I'm curious, how much of that is in your book, Advolutions? Yeah, thanks for asking. So my new book out is called Advolution, uh, which is on Amazon. And previously, I'd written a book called The Forecaster Method and another book called uh, Digital Influencer. And Advolution is a book on the future of paid media. And paid media and the internet is really changing uh, a lot. There's a lot of new regulations that are coming out. Uh, there's a lot of new ways to advertise. A lot of the new ways to advertise are around machine learning and artificial intelligence. And we're seeing a huge evolution in the overall digital space with people moving from Google Analytics, Universal Analytics, uh, to something called Google Analytics 4. So to answer your question, uh, my new book, Advolution, has all the latest and greatest stuff uh, on digital marketing. And it also allows you to plot the perfect strategy for yourself. It even talks about how to run the program by uh, by quarter, uh, by month, uh, by week, and by day, and how to manage a team uh, effectively from an executive perspective, as well as how to launch creative, how to build new audiences, and do a lot of uh, other exciting things as well. What do you think of the changes now where organic social media, I'm going to just talk social media with you because again, I do social media marketing mm -hmm. versus paid social media and how organic is really starting to become more and more the norm in, with, with social media. I think that like Google ads and specifically paid advertising when it comes to Google and SEO is going to bring the best opportunity because driving traffic is where the result comes. You don't get them to your website, whatever great virality social media you get. But what is your take now in this whole push now because of everyone putting so much money and effort into their social media now, how that, what is the better route for people to go paid or not paid when it comes to social media advertising, social media with driving traffic? So I've, I've always felt a business is at risk if they don't have at least three to five channels minimum 
working for them online. So if you're leaning all into organic social, then your business is significantly at risk uh, for an algorithm update or, you know, one week your posts start to flop or whatever. So when I coach clients, I try to get them and some, some of our clients are multi-billion dollar companies, some of the biggest companies in the world. We try to get them to the point where they're going through an evolution to eventually they've got, you know, 15 different traffic channels working with them, organic social um, in the different sites associated in organic social being just a fraction of that. So I I try to get people to lean into what they, they know really well and then to build a model off of that, but then use 10% of their marketing budget and then invest that into another channel and then create a cost per acquisition goal that works and then get that to the same level and then go into another channel and then get that to the same level, then go to another channel, get that into the same level. And um, I do think it would be a mistake just to invest in something just like organic social. Uh, you know, our company runs approximately 100 million a year uh, in advertising, and there is just a diminishing return in any channel where organic social is fantastic. I think it's one of the main places people to start should should start. And it's usually one of the main places people start, but you're eventually going to hit a wall where it just can't drive the results that you need uh, for a meaningful uh, national or, or global program. Uh, that being said, it's one of my favorite. And I think that it's, it's a great place to spend time. So that's awesome. You're, you're good at it and, and do that a lot, Neil. So yeah, I'm doing it for clients to get to a certain point in paid advertising. But when you see Facebook and how it's changed and some of the different things that are out there, you know, you listen to Neil Patel, you listen to other people, they're really pushing Google as more and tra traffic and email marketing as a bigger source of channels and different ways than looking at like, say, paid ads with Facebook and things like that. You need to have diversify for sure. But ultimately, Facebook ads used to be like, you know, the big time thing. And it's the results are definitely not there as much as other places. I just been saying that you're seeing a growth in organic social with some of these influencers that build it all straight through organic then throw some paid ads. And now the creator is taking over as the brand more than the business owner, meaning of a business logo. We're really seeing personal branding becoming such a huge part of it for huge for companies to partner with that personal brand. Give an example, Mint Mobile with Ryan Reynolds. I mean, that right there showed something of power of brand for him to make a huge payday compared to if he was just done an app, been you know, the spokesperson for them. So that's from saying the whole thing of the putting that time into organic social for your, your personal brand. Yeah, putting some paid ads in there for sure as well. And then utilize that as the face of things to take to move into with other companies or other types of collaborations to make a lot of money as a personal person. So that's where the thing is, is to making it more and more difficult for people to do organic social as a business, because if they do organic social as a business, they're 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 in they're deep trouble because um they definitely need to build some sort of personal brand when you're talking organic. Would you agree with me on that? Yeah, I've been I've always invested in uh, my own personal brand over the years, and it definitely drives some good uh, results, you know, for for the business and allows me to get introductions. Uh, but that being said, I work with uh, a lot of clients. Um, a lot of the bigger ones who there, you know, there's no personal brand um, associated with, with the company. And I do believe at some point it can be a little bit of a liability for the business. If the whole thing is built around a personal brand. Um, that being said, I think you're talking to one of the main guys who loves personal branding. I mean, uh, there's way too many videos of me online, you know, <laughs> so I'm right with you on that, man. It's, yeah, no, I just, it's, it's I'm done just well to be honest people, that yeah. we're seeing a big, big, big push and changes because Gary V is creating 
the, the trends. He's changing everything in so many ways by what he's doing. Alex Ramosi, different people like that have changed the game in the last year that we were looking five years ago and say, what the heck? What is the, this has become something so crazy. All right, David, what's your next question? Well, I wanted to dig into the artificial intelligence uh, piece of digital marketing. Um, what are some of your insights, uh, you know, related to AI and digital marketing? So AI is uh, really changing the game, not only for digital, but, you know, the world and, and definitely from a process perspective in business, but specifically on the digital marketing side. Uh, in paid media, there's a lot of use cases. In email, there's use cases. In social media, there's use cases. In SEO, there's use cases. And our company, Ignite Visibility, is really a leader in that. What we've done is we've taken every service and then we've developed AI use cases for it. And it's amazing the results that we're getting and the speed that we're able to bring to clients. I'll give you two examples examples. Um, one being, say you wanted to create an industry study uh, using AI to do all the research and write those questions for you and come up with all the things that you need to facilitate that study can be done uh, in a matter of seconds opposed to a, a matter of a, a couple hours or, or even a week in some cases. But on the paid media side, uh, there's a lot of new products that are coming out. One of the biggest one from Google is something called Performance Max. Uh, Performance Max is one of the best new ways to advertise. And the other thing we love about it is that it's going to be a, a very compliant way to advertise that Google is baking the future of their company on. And what's really cool is you can upload first party data. So you can upload your data your conversions from the website, uh, your customers, your YouTube subscribers, your YouTube viewers, and you can let Performance Max know this is what a high value conversion is. And then the ad system will just let the machine learning go and improve results over time. Uh, that being said, it is a new product. So usually when it starts, it's a pretty slow start. But it's so cool to see the AI and the machine learning just get better and better and better and better when you give it the right signals. So those are a couple examples for you. But it honestly does not stop there. When you think about social media ideation, when you think about ways that they're using AI for e-commerce to respond to comments on a website, chatbots, uh, it's really taking off and it's super exciting. And I guess the last point I would make is it's really impacting and going to impact more of the search engine optimization world. Uh, uh, ChatGPT is now a part of Bing and Google Bard is now a part of Google. So we're seeing these AI, generative AI experiences and chats inside a search now. And we are developing a whole new world of AI SEO. So it's an exciting time. Yeah, because people are searching that instead of going to Google sometimes or, or going to Bing. They're using ChatGPT or Bard uh, to do those searches. And now people are searching in a way different way. They might create something that they're starting to have a conversation with that chat with ChatGPT or Bard. And then they say, okay, I'm narrowing it down now. I'm looking for this. And then that search is found. Like who are the top five podcasters in the medical field that are serve medical or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Certain things like that. So you really have to be out there to get yourself known so that the AI is able to search and find you. So that that's, that's such a so powerful thing. Um, what do you think is going to do better, ChatGPT or Bard? Do you think ChatGPT is going to stay on top or do you think Bard's going to catch up? 
So what's really interesting about the two of them is that um, Google is way bigger than Bing. And so Google has a massive leg up with Bard. And chat GPT is connected to Bing. And one of the things that's in interesting is that although ChatGPT started first, started first, it was introduced to Bing first. You know, they have this whole separate open AI system um, for ChatGPT that was adopted uh, a very long time before Bard. So a lot of people are using that. They're building apps into that. So um, at the end of the day, I, I really think uh, Google is going to probably end up winning long term here just because they've got more of a foothold in the search space and, and more users. Um, but, you know, we, we don't know. I, what I will say is what's going to be really exciting to watch is now we're seeing that they're uh, building apps into these individual search engines uh uh, AI systems. So inside of ChatGPT and Bard, you can build an app inside of that now. You can advertise inside of that. And um, there's just a lot more use cases coming. All right. Good, David. Next question. I, I'm curious about the, the future regulation of artificial intelligence. You know, you hear of people using it to create, you know, literary works or something like that. How can you regulate it? And, and do you see that as being an issue or a benefit? Yeah. Well, first, you know, none of this is legal advice from, from my part, but I can tell you some of the things that uh, I've noticed. And uh, in general, the web has always been regulated in a lag. And now in the last year, we've seen the most regulations coming to the web than I've ever seen in my career. You know, when I got into this, you know, when I was in my early 20s, you could do anything you want. The online was online was free. You launch a site, you collect data, it's, it's no big deal. Nowadays, um, and it's actually a, a huge detriment to new businesses, um, there's a tremendous amount of regulation that's coming online. How you capture data, um, how you share data across state lines, across country lines, it's really evolving very, very quickly. And what was interesting about AI is that it launched so fast and there was zero regulations and a lot of whistleblowers came out and uh, said, hey, we need to take a pause on this. And that was really just a couple weeks ago. So at this point, there's really uh, no regulation. Businesses are, are self-governing. Uh, the government is watching and trying to decide what they're going to regulate and, and what they're not. And um, I, I don't know what, what the future holds exactly, but I do expect over the next five years, we're going to have um, specific use cases and that you can do for an AI. And I also think they're going to do a lot of what they've done, like with the FTC and advertising, which is where you need to disclose advertisements. So those would be things to, to keep an eye out. But for right now, I am unaware of too much regulation and I, I'd encourage um, listeners to research it online. So. And that will come depending, the government's already meeting with those things to make those decisions when it comes to AI, and we'll wait and see what happens. And what are your thoughts, again, because of companies now going leaner and leaner because of AI? How are people finally going to say, okay, I'm not going to rebel, I'm going to learn things about AI, I'm going to really start to study this more and understand this is just part of life and we just have to move forward compared to being rebelling, saying, I don't want to be part of this. This is taking jobs instead of, see, this is going to open up new jobs in other areas. 
Yeah. Well, the AI is not fully there yet. We know that. But one of the core values um, of our company and, and myself is, you know, first to market and embrace change. So I, I encourage people to lean into it. Um, you know, Salesforce just came out with a whole way they're going to be using AI. I know many other large companies and our clients are all already putting it in place use cases. And so you know, look, the, the way it's going to go in the future is there's going to be um, the stuff you do and the stuff AI does and the stuff that you direct AI to do for you. And AI is going to be, and certain AI use cases and processes are going to be assigned to certain people. And people are going to have organized prompts uh, that do their work for them. And then the human's going to facilitate that. They're going to have quality control. Now, it's going to be different levels for different businesses. There's going to be much different regulations, especially for certain industries like medical and financial. Um, and, and we don't know exactly how all this is going to play out yet, but we're already seeing the emergence of this. And if you just think about the way that this is going to be exacerbated and continue over the next just two years, five years, um, you know, things just move faster and faster in tech. So unless something slows it down, it, everybody's going to have some type of AI element working for them doing uh, the things that would normally take them a lot of time, which is a good thing in, in, in a lot of ways. But if you don't know how to use it and, and you're rebelling against it, you know, it's going to be hard to be in, in the workforce of the future, I think. So, all right, David, uh, last question for John. Well, I, I'd like him to restate the titles of his books. Um, you know, the only one that I was aware of was Advolution, and you've got several others that that I think uh, the listeners would be interested in. Thanks for asking, Dave. Yeah, Advolution is is the new one, um, and uh, you know it's uh, it's something I put a couple years of work into. Uh, the one book prior is called the Forecaster Method that teaches you how to create the perfect cross channel digital marketing program, and then, and then the first one I wrote was called Digital Influencer, which teaches you how to be uh, an influencer. And uh, I appreciate the question and, and all your listeners today. Thanks, guys. All right, and best place you can go find information on your company. Where can they go, John? Uh, ignitevisibility.com. And we also do a couple classes a week on our Ignite Visibility YouTube channel. Come check us out. Appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks again, John. Thank All right. You. Thanks, guys. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. My name is Dave Hollenbach the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, we got a special treat for you. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining me. Today, I've got Neil Haley from The Neil Haley Show, the, the media giant. I've got an opportunity to, to co-host uh, with him today, where we're going to interview Chief Freddie Fernandez. And um, Neil, thank you so much. The media giant, and quite literally, uh, towering in at six foot 10, former professional wrestler. 
So, uh, Neil, thank you so much for, for joining. I'm excited. We're going to do this more often. And now I can just uh, have fun where it's your show and I can ask questions when I can. And then really excited about our guests. So let's see who it is. You were mentioning who our guest is. Yeah. So Chief Freddie Fernandez, Miami Fire Rescue, retired. Chief uh, Freddie spent 32 years with Miami Fire Rescue. He held every civil service rank spending his last five years as the deputy fire chief. Chief Freddie's extensive teaching experience includes training firefighters, police officers, and corrections officers. Since 1999, Chief Freddie has specialized in test preparation courses for entry and promotional level public safety candidates. He's facilitated, prepared, and assessed hundreds of examinations, conducting seminars and private training sessions for all ranks. It is this extensive background that his new book is informed by. His new book, Fire Assessment Center 360, Climb Past Your Competition, is available now. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But, um, you know, I would encourage you guys to go back and listen to the first interview that I did with Chief Freddie. He has graced this show uh, in the past. So, Chief Thank you so much for joining me again to uh, share uh, share the good news of your book coming out. Well, Dave, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. I'm so excited, especially having Neil here. That's an extra bonus I wasn't expecting, and it's just absolutely awesome. I thank both of you for your time and your listeners for paying attention. Um, I'm super excited about this new book that I've just put together. Uh, I was asked recently at church, you know, how long did it take to put the, the book together? And I told the lady that asked me, well, about 40 years. And she just started laughing and she goes, what do you mean 40 years? I said, well, really, it's an accumulation of 40 years of experience in the fire service, of training, of teaching others. The actual process of writing the book, when I really determined, hey, I'm going to get this done, did take about a year. And Dave, I, I got to admit that part of the motivation was, was seeing your book when I read your book last year. And that inspired me to, to really get focused and get it done. So in this book, I just, I'm so excited to share what I've learned over the last 40 years of working with trainees, working with students from around the country, and what I learned in the fire service. And, and I thank you for hosting me today. Tell me a little bit about who is this book written for? That's a great question, because this book is written for anybody in the fire service that is looking to expand and grow their career. Um, the title of a book, like you said, is Assessment Center 360, Climb Past Your Competition. Because it's focused to people that are perhaps going to have a promotional exam at some point in their career. But the focus that I tried to get across in this book is that we do not prepare for an assessment center. We do not prepare for an exam. We prepare ourselves. And one of the quotes that I have in the book early on in the book is about not trying to put on a persona or a fake image in the exam because that will not carry you very far. And like I said, I, I was inspired by your book, but I quoted over 40 different authors in, in my book. And I take information from a lot of different sources, both in the fire service, outside the fire service, law enforcement. Um, one of my favorites, of course, John Maxwell. I have a lot of things from quotes from his. But what I try to tell the students is prepare yourself, mm -hmm. then prepare for the assessment center. And that's the whole premise of the book that you cannot demonstrate something on a promotion exam that you don't already possess. Now, Chief, specifically enough, you're talking about promotions. How important is it to move up the ladder if you're going to be in the fire 
be a firefighter? Why don't you stay a specific rank? What is so important once you get into this business to make sure you move up the ladder? And, you know, promotions really aren't for everybody. There are some that choose to enter the career and stay at the firefighter rank for the rest of their career. And that's fine. For those people, I just say, be good at your craft. If you're a driver of a ladder truck, an engine truck, just be very good at it. But the reason that moving up, I think, is so important is it challenges people. It helps people grow. If you think about things like the self-actualization from Maslow, of always trying to reach that pinnacle. Um, it helps people to stay current in their career, helps to expand their reach. We have a lot of people that are leaders. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that in order to be a leader, you have to first learn how to lead yourself and be able to grow and develop. So I think one of the things that helps to keep us fresh in the career, helps keep us from getting stale, and it just makes the career more exciting throughout the years, in my opinion. I loved not just the the process, um, but the opportunity to grow and to be mentored. Because as I moved up in rank, it was like, well, one, I'm able to influence that many more people, but two it's like a, another door of influencers is opened up to me. So I'm, I'm closer to the next rank. Um, the, the people that have been there and done that, um, they're, they're more likely to mentor you as, as well when they see you striving to achieve more, you know? It's interesting you would say that, Dave, because one of the chapters in the book is about mentoring. And I talk a lot about one of the early mentors I had in my career. He unfortunately passed away in the last year. His name was Robert Polk. But when I got hired in 1983, he already had 33 years in the fire service. Wow. He had been a union president. He had been a civil service board president. And he rode one of the busiest medic units in our department. But you would think that every patient was his mom. He treated every patient the way you would want to be treated. I also talk about other mentoring relationships that I had, and I specifically talk a lot about my fire chief, Maurice Kemp. Maurice Kemp was an incredible mentor because he listened to his subordinates. He empowered his subordinates, and he tried to get us to grow every day, so he challenged us. So I talk a lot about mentoring, and to back to Neil's question, I think that's a great part of the growth process as you challenge promotion exams is you're challenging yourself, and then your horizons start to change. So for instance, as a company officer, you're managing a crew, perhaps a couple of crews in a fire station. But once you get to a battalion chief, you might be managing 50 personnel, uh, five, six stations with 10, 12 apparatus. And as you continue going up the, the ranks, your, your scope just becomes much bigger and your reach becomes bigger. And for people with you know the personality that you wanna be challenged and not stay stale in your position, I think it's great to continue getting promoted and making a bigger impact. So how about, let's talk a little bit about mentoring. How does it, how hard is it when you're in this industry to find mentors? Is it, what do you look out for when you're looking for a mentor? That's a great question. In the book, I actually referenced how to set up mentorship programs, how to look for mentors, what to look for. And one of the people I quoted the book is the pastor from my church, Pastor Ryan Reed. He did an entire service on mentoring and setting up this mentoring relationship. Now, Dave might want to chime in here, but I've always found that if you want to learn, the teacher will appear. And if you ask, if you have the right positive attitude, there's always people out there that are willing to coach you. 
one of the expressions we have in the fire service is that a senior or an older firefighter's the most important job is to teach the young firefighter how to become an old firefighter. The one thing that I would, um, I, I guess, warn others on is that there are people that uh, fancy themselves as, uh, you know, a gift to the fire service and, and they attempt to mentor others when in reality they should kind of steer away from it. And, and so as a young firefighter, I, I think it's incumbent to get to know the people on your crew and the people on other crews and, and really see who is, who's the one that people are looking up to and, and try and uh, work with that individual, you know, almost like you're uh, interviewing them informally, you know, cause you want, the best of the best to be mentoring you, you know? Yeah. And I think it's important not to dive into a mentoring relationship. Perhaps you kind of, it's almost like your initial couple of dates where you talk to them, you engage with them, and then you're looking for those skill sets, those behaviors that you want to emulate. So for instance, if this person is always to work on time, if this person is always one of the first ones out checking out the rig, um, if he's always being courteous to citizens and patients, you start looking at those traits and you say, hey, wait a minute, those are traits that I'd like to have. And then you just start the conversation because obviously it's a two-way street. That mentor has to have time, effort, energy to uh, work with the mentee. How much do they award, reward people in the fire department if they are mentoring or like a, reviews, different things <laughs> like that, see them as a value part of the organization because they're putting the extra time in that they don't really have to? That's always been one of the pet peeves that I almost started chuckling when you asked the question because it, it rankles me and it irks me. I don't know of a lot of departments that have a formal program of mentoring or a reward-based program where there's an incentive or some sort of, of pay or benefit for mentoring. Most of the mentoring programs that I know of are just informal, where it just starts with that relationship and somebody who perhaps uh, sees somebody that says, hey, that person has a lot of potential. I'd like to help them. I had a lieutenant early in my career, in addition to ballpark, I had another lieutenant. This was even earlier. Uh, his name is Jim Fisher. He retired as our chief of training. I still stay in contact with him today. And he lives out in Flagstaff, Arizona now. And he's one of the people that contributed some, some material to my book. So, But he was the type that took the time to mentor you and coach you and I think he bred that in me. And then I did it down the road as well. They're all informal. The only thing that I, I think maybe might be something that you could compare to is like a precepting program where the, the, the senior paramedics will get an incentive for essentially checking off another paramedic. So that and basically giving them their blessing that they're ready uh, to you know, be on their own. And that's not a bad analogy, Dave. But um, what I found is that some preceptors do it for the right reason. Uh, some do it because they get a pay bump. Maybe they get a one or two percent pay bump or they get some sort of a benefit. So I've had pros and cons with that in my career. Um, but it is a good analogy in terms that they do have a way to influence other people's career. And the preceptoring tends to be a little more structured than some of the uh, mentoring programs. 
What about the testing? You talk about preparing for the test in your book. Like these exams, are they difficult to move move up the ladder? They're very challenging. And the reason is that in the fire service for about the last 30 to 40 years, uh, a lot of departments have gone to what's called the assessment center process or assessment center methodology. And one of the reasons is this has been validated to have the less adverse impact on different uh, classes. It's been uh, validated as being the most likely to predict future performance. But what it does in the assessment center process, it puts you in the seat. So I mean that administratively, I mean that in terms of giving presentations, running emergency scenes. And what they try to do is build exercises, build scenarios that are as close as possible to the actual job position. So it'll all start with what's called a job task analysis or review of the position. And they determine what are the skill sets that are most important for the position. So at the firefighter level, paramedic or lower levels, it's more task-based. As you continue moving up each level of supervision, it becomes more strategy-based, more command-based. And obviously, the higher you get in the organization, more administrative skills. So there's basically about six fundamental exercises you'll find in most assessment center processes, and they do vary based on rank. So for instance, an in-basket is more of a paperwork-driven exercise, managing calendar, scheduling, managing a lot of documentation and material. That wouldn't be likely at a lieutenant level. But at a lieutenant level, you might get more of a training presentation where you have to give training on a piece of equipment. Uh, perhaps at, pretty much at all levels, you're going to run an emergency scenario of some sort. But obviously, at the lower levels, you might manage just a couple of companies, a couple of crews. At a chief level, you might be managing dozens of crews. So the, the whole process of the assessment center is kind of taken away from the old-fashioned multiple-choice written exam that just proves what you can memorize, what you can remember out of a book. Now, there is some value for that. There's a place for that in, in the testing process. But the assessment center, which is what most agencies do now, both fire and police, it's more based on the reality of the job, and it's a better predictor of what they're going to do in the future. Chief, how many, how many assessments would you say that you have informed on? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> yeah, I know you give me a tough question at some point. I'd have to say in the thousands at this point, um, over the last 24, 25 years that I've been doing assessment center training, I've prepared people from approximately 475 different departments and 71 or 72 different testing outfits or testing companies. There's approximately that many companies around the country that put on assessment center testing. Now, some departments will put on their own in-house testing done by HR. So you could add that to the list as well. So if you take those 475 plus departments, you can figure that a lot of those I've prepared people for lieutenant, captain, or chief. A lot of other processes are prepared people for fire chief position as well. So it's got to be in the thousands by this point. Would, would you say that your book is a pretty good distillation of, you know, your, how you would prep somebody? 100%. And that's what I tried to do in the book is to give a lot of different examples. So some testing companies, for instance, in emergency operations, they'll do a radio-based test where it's all radio communication simulated. That's what we call a dynamic uh, example. Some companies will do a static test where they give you information, but there's no feedback. There's no interaction. Some will ask you questions. Some will have a combination of these. So in the book, I tried to describe all of these systems. 
And I asked my students as they're reading the book to determine what their testing vendor, who their testing vendor is, what their process is. And then in the book, I demo how to do, work through each one of those systems. But the big thing that I emphasize, I think in a lot of the chapters in the book, but especially in the tactical or emergency ops one, is if it's not said, it's not scored. So a lot of firefighters will imply things or assume, and we know what happens when you assume, that certain knowledge that they have is implied that, that something would be done. So I got to get them to overcome that hurdle and be able to explain everything that's happening on the scene in detail, because the raider cannot score you if you don't say you did it. They cannot give you the benefit of the doubt on any of your actions. Wow. And, and I think that you look at things uh, so much with the experience to really figure it out more practical than a lot of these exam preparation books or things that really don't lay it out through experience. Right. And they're just hoping, Hey, I can memorize this stuff or look at this stuff up, but you're going to give really perspective in this book regarding this exam. Well, you know, you, you touched a, a very important point right there, Neil. And I have a chapter on interpersonal counseling, subordinate counseling, where you're working with a troubled employee. Now, this chapter is dedicated to a former firefighter that I used to work with. His name is Luis Edward Perez. We called him Louis Perez. His family called him Eddie from his middle name. Now, I worked with Eddie uh, Lewis for many years, and we had a great relationship. Eventually, I moved up in the administration, and we still maintained our relationship. He would come by the chief's office periodically, stick his head in the door. Chief, how you doing? And we would always chat. But towards the end of my career, he wasn't doing well. He was having some personal challenges. He was really struggling. So towards the end, um, he came to my office on my very last day. We had a big group of people. We took a bunch of pictures. We actually went for a ride on, the, on his engine. About a week later, I had a, a party, a, a retirement party. It was disco-based theme. Had everybody dressed up like if it was a disco night. And he didn't show up at the party. A couple of days later, he calls me to apologize for not showing up. We continue chatting. And I, I never forget this. We took 23 minutes on the phone and we were reminiscing and talking about things. And I asked him, how are you doing? And he was giving me a lot of one word answers, short answers. And I kept emphasizing, hey, if you need help, reach out. We have a lot of resources, you know, get help. Well, three days later, he took his own life. And I dedicated that entire chapter to his memory. Because in the fire service, unfortunately, we have a lot of suicides. We have more suicide than we have line of duty deaths every year. And a lot of that is from post-traumatic stress. It's from dealing with a lot of the emergencies and the traumas and the things that we see, the lack of sleep. So I tried to emphasize that in that chapter, Neil, and you brought up a great point there, that I want everything in this book to be applied every single day of your career. This is not something that you're going to work on for the test and then put the book in a drawer, pick it up three years from now for the next rank. My goal was that everything in this book is applied on a daily basis. And I know in Dave's book, um, he talks with great candor, great humility about some of these topics of PTSD. And, it, you know, that's one of the things that also motivated me to really put that emphasis on that chapter that, most firefighters love the emergency operations. You know, they want that adrenaline rush, go to an emergency scene, make a rescue. But in reality, that's a small percentage of our day. The largest percentage of our day is with the other firefighters in the firehouse, breaking bread, training, drilling, going to schools and training, hydrant maintenance, all the things that we do together. And I think that skill set is sometimes lost because it isn't flashy. It isn't fun. 
but I, I really wanted to emphasize that in the book. And I think Dave in his book does a very good job of that too. In regard to your book, how many chapters, how many pages, how is it laid out? Is it meant to be read from chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, or is it something that you can reference different parts of the book um, depending on what it is that you're working on? Well, it's funny that you would ask that because I know the answers to that. It's 90,000 words. <laughs> it's 16 chapters. And in essence, it's kind of laid out in three sections. I didn't necessarily split it up that way in the table of contents. But the first chapter, the first section, I should say, is more about yourself, overcoming challenges, time management, uh, getting your family involved in the whole process, your mentors. I talk a lot about resources such as websites, books, um, podcasts, all the resources that are out there to help you learn. The second phase of the book talks a lot about assessment centers. So I introduce what an assessment center is, what the raters are. I, I show a lot of different rating scales. I talk about a lot of different rating companies, how the companies work. So the second section is more in line of what is an assessment center? What is it that I'm getting into? And then the third section breaks down each of the exercises. So each exercise is explained in, in a lot of detail and then there are samples. So I give demonstrate, demonstrate how to answer, how to set up worksheets. So in essence, it's broken into three sections. First section is more about the person, how to develop, how to get ready for the process. Two is what's the process? What is this assessment center? And then three is the deep dive into each of the exercises. So the way that I see it, a person can get into the book and they could read it from beginning to end. Or when they get to that third section, they may say, well, you know what? Freddie talks about an in-basket, but I don't have one. Maybe I'm not going to focus on that one this time. But when I go for chief, I will. I talk about interviews, for example. So if they don't have an interview, I would say I would consider not looking at that chapter, depending on how much time they have available. I'd rather they read it all the way through, because I think a lot of things they learn in one individual chapter could bleed over to other chapters and other exercises. But I cover basically the, the fundamentals of how to run an emergency operation, how to give a presentation, whether it's internal stakeholders or external stakeholders. We talk about subordinate counseling. We talk about interviews, obviously emergency operations, and then the in-basket. So those are the six most common exercises they're likely to have in an interview, and they're all covered in a lot of detail in the book in that third section. Well, Dave, I, I am impressed by Chief Freddie's information, aren't you? Again, that's why you had him back on again. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, before we go, uh, Chief, where can people get in touch with you and where uh, can they purchase your book? Well, the book is going to be available on all the major uh, outlets. Uh, the primary outlet where it's going to be available is an outlet called Book Baby. And they have a company, uh, an outlet called The Book Shop. So I'll be providing that, those, uh, that information shortly. The book is just in the early stages of being released, so to, but it will be available on Barnes & Noble and all the other websites. It's also going to be available in an e-book e form for those people that like using it on a Kindle, some sort of electronic device. I'm old school. I like the book in my hand. I like to be able to circle and highlight and, and dog ear pages, but it is available for people that want to do the e-book style as well. Awesome. And then for those that would like to check out your assessment center training, because I know you're still doing that um, for uh, fire and law enforcement, correct? Yes, sir. I've got two websites. I've got one website is Fire Assessment Center Prep. 
prep.com. And then I've got a sister website called police assessment center prep.com. And if you know how fire and police people are and the rivalry between them. So on the fire website, all the theme is red. There's a lot of red on there. And then obviously on the law enforcement side, we have a lot of blue, but I enjoy training police officers as well. I enjoy that camaraderie. I have a great time working with them. So it's fireassessmentcenterprep.com or policeassessmentcenterprep.com. And either one of those websites have my phone number, my email, and people are uh, more than welcome to reach out either mechanism. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Chief, again, for for joining me a second time and uh, for actually putting together what I know is going to be an amazing book, Fire Assessment Center 360, Climb Past Your Competition. So check it out. Uh, Get your copy as soon as possible. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, it's another beautiful day here in North Carolina. I'll probably go play some golf later on today. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic, and always a beautiful day anywhere in the summer. We'll see what happens when it gets cold. I might not be saying the same thing, but what is our topic? What are we going to cover today? Well, I've got got all this a little bit, but I want to go into a more explanation about becoming your own financial institution, never having to borrow money again. And I think people will get a a better perception of what this does and the benefits that it gives them. But I got a short PowerPoint again uh, presentation for this, and I've got a you know, I'm, I'm doing probably these debt-free for life cases, probably 10 a week now for people. And they just can't believe it. They say, Alan, this is too good to be true. I said, it's no, it's too good to be free. It's just a matter of education and knowing what to do. But uh, I'll show you this, Neil. I think uh, people will like this. Become your own financial institution and pay yourself compound interest and not the financial uh, institutions or the banks. And people don't understand that you can become your own financial institution, your own bank, and pay themselves compound interest and not the financial institutions. Because when you pay money to a financial institution, you know, that's gone. It'll never compound for you again. So what I show people, as an example, you want to buy a car, and you want to buy a car for, say, $50,000. Now, you can go to the financial institution or bank and borrow that money. If you do get the loan, you don't, they don't make the payments. They're going to ruin your credit and repossess the car. And But the thing is, you're paying that, that uh, financial institution, that bank, compound interest. And you've lost that forever. It'll never compound for you. Or you can borrow money from your cash value life insurance policy and pay yourself compound interest instead of the financial institutions. Now, here's an example. This, this is just an a example of a... The policy that I did for a gentleman, he had three hundred and fifty thousand or three hundred some thousand dollars in cash value, and I so I showed him what it would do on his policy. He said, "Well, let's see what a fifty thousand dollar loan would look like to myself." So I said, "Okay, here's the fifty thousand dollars that you're taking out of the cash value. This is you paying your back yourself back at zero percent interest, ten thousand dollars a year for five years. Now, this is what your cash value was 
before the 327, and this is what your cash value was afterwards, the 286. But at the end of the five years, not only have you paid all of this money back to yourself, the cash value of your policy is $437,000 because you're being paid dividends even on the money that you borrow. They're paid dividends in that original $303,000 in this. Wow. And people don't understand that. I mean, this guy, even if he buys a house, he may not have to go to the bank. Of course, it's how big a house is, but he may never have to go to the bank again. He'll never have to borrow money to do, to do anything because all he has to do is have money in these types of accounts, these cash-free, uh, tax-free, I call them SDICs, specially designed insurance contracts. And they're specially built for this particular reason. And we show people how to do this and they'll never have to borrow money from a bank institution again. They'll be debt-free for their life and they can do many, many things.